What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Core Consult RX Podcast. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. And we also are joined by a special guest again for episode second appearance on the show, right? Episode two for you. Mm-hmm. Miss, or excuse me, I'm not, not Miss anymore. Last time you were a P4 now, Dr. Sharon DeCal. Sharon, what's going on? How are you? Good. Been really good. Just chugging away. Residency, all the fun stuff. How about you guys? Yeah, uh, same kind of, well, not residency, but um, working and just trying to get through this year and kind of hopefully uh, make a better year of it next year. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> How, um, how's everything been going for you with res? Because it's your PGY1 year, right? Correct. Yep, I'm a PGY1. I'm um, over at St. Joseph Mercy, Oakland. It's in Pontiac, Michigan. So kind of border kind of bordering a little bit north of Detroit in the in the uh, southeast Michigan area um, it's been going pretty well I am going to start diabetes education transitions of care tomorrow just got off a research month um, and it's still probably going to be going into the next month but so far so good and it's, I love my co-residents I love everyone I'm with and it's been a really good year nice so That's you've awesome. got like what five more months ish in the pg one Six months and 30 days. Ah, who's counting? <laughs> nice. So as far as like diabetes education, is are you doing like, is it setting you up to where, you know, you can get accumulate your hours and whatnot so that you can sit for the, it used to be the diabetes educator um, or certified diabetes educator. But now it's like the CDCES. Yeah. I've had to explain that a few times. Certified diabetes care and education specialist. Yeah. Is that, is that what it's like? Is it like involved with like educating on diet and things like that? Or is it more on the medication management side? So it's a little bit of both. As far as accumulating hours, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to ask my preceptor. Um, but it's mostly like in the hospital side, there's a consult to a diabetes educator. And we'll go ahead and we'll educate patients on exactly that. So lifestyle, um, diet, medications, how to inject insulin. And then we can go ahead and refer them to our education program, which we do the um, it's like the AABE classes. And then I'll also be kind of precepting a student and helping them kind of manage and run those classes as well. So it'll be a busy, busy month. And then I think I'm also going to incorporate some glycemic stewardship in there. So that'll be interesting because I don't, I think I might be the first resident doing that. So it's going to be fun. I I think it's going to be kind of like a a mixture of everything. Nice. And yeah, that'll definitely count towards her hours. She's a pharmacist. Yeah. yeah. Once you, once you're a pharmacy, I think is when it counts. It's it's when you're a student doing it that they're like, nah. Yeah. But if you've graduated, (laughs) then all that'll go towards it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that's definitely because I think you have to have, unless something's changed, I think because you just got yours, so it should be a yeah, thousand hours, thousand four hundred last year, and then year. you got to pass the the board certification and all that stuff. But that's one definitely if you're going to be doing AmCare, obviously going for the regular board AmCare board certification, but the diabetes education one is a good one to have too, because then if your program oh, sure. if your program you're with gets accredited, then you can bill under Medicare. It's like the only thing PharmDs can actually <laughs> Which do. Which maybe by then they'll be able to do it regardless. Yeah, but uh, hopefully. for now, that's one of the few avenues. Yeah. No, it is the hope. It's only, it's only going forward. So what's the plan going on next year? Are you going to do PGY2 or start working or what's your plan? So PGY2 is the hope. Um, I've applied to a few places locally. Um, Amcare Clinic is my home, as I say. Um, love diabetes, love anticoagulation. Um, so hopefully by March, I'll have a plan and I see it as a win-win. If I match, I'll be super stoked. And if I don't, then 
it means I still get to do what I love, but in a different capacity. So, well, I guess it's kind of like a, that weird, like waiting on interviews, waiting on like, okay, did they get my application? I haven't gotten any emails back yet. It's like that constant refresh button. It didn't change from like P4 to PGY1. It's still the same. It's all the, still the same anxiety. <laughs> anxiety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Very optimistic view though. You know, I'd be like, it's PGY2 or my life is over. You know, I'm, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> he is it's all the time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, that's I mean, awesome. It's, thanks. Thank you. So um, when you get out then, Amcare, um, do you have like a, do you want to do like diabetes in particular or anti-COAD? Do you have a specific area that's been like more interest than others to you or? Um, I really like diabetes. Um, I think that's what I was, I was first exposed to Palm as a P4 and I thought that was super cool too. Um, but I actually, my interest is kind of a 50-50 faculty clinic split. Um, that's the, that's kind of the end goal for me. Um, but if, I guess if I had to start somewhere, it definitely would be diabetes and then just kind of expand from there. I, I have my anti-coag rotation in May. So, and I mean, you see it inpatient, but obviously it's not to the same like capacity of like Coumadin dosing, you know, inpatient, you're going day by day. Whereas when you're outpatient, it's like week by week. Right. So yeah, I think definitely diabetes is, is kind of where, where my, my biggest interest is right now. Very cool. All right. So today, because last time you were on, we talked about pruritus. Um, and so today we're doing procalcitonin, correct? Correct. <laughs> so how did that come about? Like, how did uh, you end up getting interested in that? Or was that a forced interest via your preceptor? <laughs> um, it, actually, I was introduced to procalcitonin as a P4 last year when I was doing my rotations over at Henry Ford. And then I was on antimicrobial stewardship back in, I think, October. It seems like so long ago. And right before my rotation, our PGY2 in critical care gave the critical care team, I think she was on MICU at the time, like a little in-service on procalcitonin. And then my preceptor, um, I don't know if he's chair, but I know he's heavily involved in the antimicrobial stewardship committee at our hospital. And the month that I was taking the rotation at the end of the month was going to be the meeting. So this was one of the topics of the meeting. And I actually wound up doing kind of a mini MUE to see how we were evaluating ProCal in the beginning of COVID and then how we were using, sorry, how we were using ProCal in the beginning of COVID and then how or if that changed um, at the end of COVID because ProCalcitonin was, I think it was pretty new to our hospital this year. Um, so I did a, I did some reading on it. Thanks a big thanks to the PGY2 and critical care. She like with her little sheet, it was like a lot of the literature was kind of laid out for me. And then I wound up kind of giving the numbers and giving an overview to our antimicrobial stewardship committee. So super grateful for that opportunity. And I figured I haven't heard an episode on ProCal. And I think as a student, I made a lot of interventions on rounds. And hopefully when I take ICU in March, I'll, I'll be able to kind of, use it and help in the stewardship world yeah yeah we definitely have not done an episode on it so this will be the first that um, one i that one i didn't even have to look on i, I know just just like, yeah, no, for sure we haven't definitely haven't done that one <laughs> so no that's awesome so as far as this topic goes where should we actually start can we kind of talk real quick about some background information 
Because I'm sure a lot yeah. of listeners, aren't, especially the ones that aren't involved in inpatient or don't do infectious disease, maybe haven't even really seen this since like basic biochem or something. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a good start would be in the realm of antimicrobial stewardship, right? If you think about the prescription of antibiotics, it's stored. The, the rates of C. diff, both inpatient and outpatient, have also soared, right, just because of the overuse of antibiotics. Not to say that antibiotic prescription is bad, but I think sometimes um, we could very well be missing the mark or sometimes overprescribing. And if we have tools to maybe um, make different interventions, like decreasing the duration of therapy or um, either tapering down or um, completely discontinuing if we can differentiate the difference between a bacterial and a viral infection, this would be um, a great tool to have kind of in your pocket. So I guess we can kind of start there and start with infection markers. So usually, um, I guess students, when, when your preceptor asks you, you know, what are certain things that you look for when you're looking for infections, what, what would you look for in the chart? So a lot of the answers you get is ESR, CRP, leukocytes, fever, but oftentimes procalcitonin is overlooked. Um, so I think it's kind of important. That's kind of a good start, right? So ESR, CRP, white blood cell count. You know that if a patient is out of normal range or if they're extremely high, that these these markers are sensitive to inflammation, right? But they're not specific for infection. So this is kind of where, where procalcitonin comes in. So procalcitonin is specific for infection, so that 79% specific for bacterial infections. And I, I'll kind of put an asterisk there because it's kind of super important to know that it's for bacterial infections. But it's not always sensitive to inflammation, so it's kind of the opposite of the other markers. Um, and it's also known to correlate with the severity of an infection. So I guess, like, what is procalcitonin? So kind of in the name, so we're all aware it was on our um, PCAT, right? Cal calcitonin is something that is used in the body to regulate calcium. But procalcitonin is exactly what it sounds like, the precursor to calcitonin. It's made in the thyroid um, C cell, and then it's, so it's kind of naturally occurring in your body. But then that, that procalcitonin, to become calcitonin, it's cleaved um, by like a 25 amino acid signal sequence um, by like all these little endopeptidases. So then the end product is calcitonin, and that's kind of what's responsible for calcium regulation. However, when somebody has a bacterial infection, you, you think of like a lot of endotoxins that are produced by the bacteria. Um, so that results in cytokines, so interleukin-6, you have TNF-alpha, you have um, interleukin-B. So all of these can stimulate procalcitonin production. And in this case, that end chain does not get cleaved. So it's kind of floating around in the body as such. And then kind of piggybacking off that, there are a couple of caveats, right? So it doesn't really... Um, come to fruition with local infections. And then it doesn't exist, for lack of better terms, when it comes to viral infections. And that's because when somebody has a viral infection, viral infections, instead of cytokines being released, there's um, interferon gamma produced. And that is what blocks the interleukins that are responsible for the rise in procalcitonin. 
did that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah so that's why a good stopping point. Okay, no, that's okay. why specific, and that's that's why we we focus on it because you can determine with some uh, with some clarity whether it's bacterial or viral. And so, is mm-hmm. like in in a normal patient who's not undergoing a an infection, they're not going to have any like like detectable procalcitonin because theirs is automatically getting converted into calcitonin which is like you said working on calcium homeostasis but the mm-hmm. infection itself when an infection is causing it so bacterial infection is causing it it's not actually that um the gene that calc um what is it calc one i think is the gene that's it, it is involved with its um formation um that gene is more activated on the side of like the um adipocytes and things like that as opposed to this c um the C thyroid cells. And so, um, or thyroid C cells, I mean. And, um, and so that, that's why you're, like you said, it's not being cleaved in that case. And so it's starting to build up, but a normal patient wouldn't have any, like it would have to be a negligible reading as far as procalcitonin goes, correct? Correct. It would be less than like 0.05 nanograms per milliliter. And then we'll get into like cutoffs in a little bit too. So yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. But I guess it's also important to note that um, it's renally cleared, right? So you can very well have false negatives and you can have false positives. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing I I forgot to mention was that procalcitonin, you don't really see the rise until like 3 to 12-ish. It peaks right around 12 to 24 hours after the initial bacterial infection. But then in patients who have sepsis, and it's like the surviving sepsis uh, guidelines actually have a statement on it, it increases two to four hours of of sepsis onset. So you kind of have to be careful when you're measuring procalcitonin. You have to take into account, okay, it's renally excreted. So normally you have to have higher cutoff if somebody is in renal failure. Um, The half-life of procalcitonin is about 20 to 24 hours. Um, So I guess kind of getting into the false positives and negatives. So in inflammatory states, so you have false positives, so somebody who's in cardiogenic shock, uh, decompensated heart failure, which you guys just did an episode on that a few months ago, um, <laughs> CKD, you might need higher cutoff. Um, patients who have burns or necrosis, or even we're pharmacists, so we have to think, is, are they on any medications that could stimulate cytokines? So like alemtuzumab is a great example of that. Um, and then even some of the data was saying that neonates and then women who are um, postpartum have kind of a higher level just because of the state of their bodies. Um, but then kind of tipping to the other side, false negatives, we said that the, the level rises three to 12 hours. Well, if we're testing like an hour into admission, you could very well miss something. So it's important to be repeating it. Um, and then pa- patients who have chronic infections, so patients who have endocarditis or osteomyelitis, um, they're kind of always in that inflamed state. The body isn't really, it's not going to show that great of a difference or even um, mycoplasma infection. So that is actually something I wanted to hone in on was that, I mean, we're seeing more and more of this as mycoplasma Um I guess it's kind of the new strep with pneumonia is what I've heard. I have to like fact check myself. Um, but I remember reading that mycoplasma does not um, increase serum procalcitonin levels. So, mm. you you know, you have to think of antimicrobial stewardship. It's not always just stopping antibiotics, but it's initiating antibiotics when they're necessary, right? Because we're treating a patient. We're not treating a simple number. So, um, 
that's kind of the gist of the false positives and false negatives. And then, so then when do we really use procalcitonin? Um, so it's not really used to initiate antibiotics or to extend therapy. Um, the FDA in 2017, I believe they, yes, in 2017, they approved it um, for clinical judgment purposes in respiratory infections and in sepsis and like helping decision-making guided use of anti antibiotic decision-making. So it's not really so much like, okay, um, patients coming in, they're febrile, um, they, their white counts crazy, they're, they, they look, they're looking, they're looking septic. Let's get a procal. No, like let's initiate antibiotics. Um, because that has data, right. To like decrease mortality. So kind of getting into that. Um, and I guess, correct me if I'm kind of jumping around here, but I guess kind of in that sepsis picture, right. So the surviving sepsis guidelines, they have statement 14 and 15. So statement 14, they say that we suggest Measurements of procalcitonin levels can be used to support shortening duration of antimicrobial therapy in sepsis patients. It's a weak recommendation, low quality of evidence. And then statement 15 is that um, sepsis, surviving sepsis campaign. So we suggest that procalcitonin levels can be used to support the discontinuation of empiric antibiotics in patients who initially appear to have sepsis, but subsequently have limited clinical evidence of infection. So that's kind of the biggest point that I wanted to make is that it's not really, it's not something that is like a judgment call right away, you know, snap your fingers, we're going, if procalcitonin levels are high, we're going to go ahead and start antibiotics. No, it should be, okay, patient's been on antibiotics for about four days now. Um, we started antibiotics for sepsis. Um, they're clinically improving. Let's get a procalcitonin. Let's see if maybe we can um, do you see this, this, this zinc and cefepime if our cultures aren't really giving us any information? Um, let's see if we can maybe decrease the, the duration of therapy. Um, so we're kind of, again, treating the patient and not the number. Right. So, um, it's, so there to, of, it's there as an additional marker to confirm maybe what they were thinking. Hey, we could probably stop antibiotics, even though we're supposed to continue to this course based on some guidelines or whatever. We could probably stop it. And they point to that as an additional thing to say, okay, they're doing better. We can stop it now better for antimicrobial stewardship. Yeah, so, exactly. So its main its main purpose then is on the back end as far as stopping the empiric antibiotics or at least um, de-escalating as opposed to knowing when to start antibiotics. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yep. We shouldn't, it shouldn't really be used to start antibiotics. If it, I mean, especially like in sepsis, meningitis those life-threatening situations, you know, when in doubt, you're always going to want to go with, you know, with the data that says that it decreases mortality, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, There's an article in Medscape here that I, that I got pulled up and they were kind of a couple of clinicians were debating on whether or not, you know, how to include procalcitonin levels. And one of them was talking about how it could play a role in diagnosis. Um, and then the other person on the other side was saying that, uh, um, it's not the best marker of how sick a patient is necessarily. He said there are a number of other tests that can be used to predict the severity of critical illness, such as the sequential organ failure assessment. Uh, and then he says if, if he has someone with a temperature of 39 degrees Celsius, a blood pressure of 70 over 30, um, a white blood cell count of 30,000, he goes, I already know they're sick. I don't need to necessarily look at a procalcitonin level to confirm that, he said. But knowing when to stop antibiotics is when it becomes really useful. 
um, they've it's, they're having a quick nerd fight, but I think they ended up agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and there are different um, ti- like there are different time ranges, right? So it should be like assessed every one to two days. It's not like you're getting it every hour. Sometimes I think it can be overused in that sense. Um, and then I guess that would be kind of like a good. This would be a good time to kind of get into cutoff points. So if we are getting procalcitonin, like Mike, you were using that example, that that patient white blood cell count 30,000 febrile. So let's say the next day, 24 hours later, um, we get a procalcitonin. So the data is more concrete. So the PROHOS trial, that's for lower respiratory tract infections. And then I think it was the MOSES trial for sepsis. I'll have to double check myself on that. Um, but the cutoff points, so for COPD exacerbations would be about like 0.5. That's when you would say that it's like a true bacterial infection um, or upper respiratory tract infections. The cutout would be zero, cutoff would be 0.25 nanograms per milliliter for VAP. And then um, other re- upper respiratory tract infections would be about 0.5 nanograms per milliliters. And this, the role in that is to just reduce antibiotic exposure without adverse outcome. Um, there, for sepsis and septic shock, um, the role is to limit antibiotic use, and that cutoff point is about 0.25 to 0.5 nanograms per milliliter. Um, there are other, like we said earlier, like with the false positive, so patients who have endocarditis, you are looking, it's like a higher cutoff value, and that's the role, according to this article I read, was the diagnostic accuracy for predicting endocarditis, but it's not, it was a very small study. So it's not all that concrete. That's when you would have to use um, clinical judgment. But I did kind of want to touch on COVID-19. So there was actually a study that came out that used, it was like IL-6, CRP and procalcitonin in patients with COVID-19. And it was retrospective um, cohort study where 140 patients were diagnosed with COVID. So they wanted to use IL-6 CRP and procalcitonin to see, um, okay, well, if the patients who have COVID have a higher procalcitonin, are they sicker? Like kind of assessing the severity. And long story short, they concluded that IL-6 and CRP have a correlation with COVID, but the validity of procalcitonin needs to be further investigated. So that kind of like, I guess validates our whole, like this is specific for bacterial infections. It's specific for the escalation of antibiotics, not so much of, okay, like somebody has COVID, um, they have a high procalcitonin, so we should probably start them on antibiotics or, or, or they have a more severe case. There are a lot of more factors that need to be taken into consideration. So with what made them start looking at COVID with procalcitonin? Cause is is that one not as not as uh is, does COVID not have as much of an activation of um, like um, interferon gamma to to kind of suppress the procalcitonin or is is there normally something I would think viruses it wouldn't be as useful or is they just they were just looking at it just as a shot in the dark kind of thing. So the latter kind of shot in the dark, but then I Mike they didn't say it in the article, but my brain kind of went to the whole cytokine storm theory because like they talked about that a lot and this study was done um they were evaluating patients in january to march so it was pretty early on when we really didn't know like what was what so i think they were just kind of 
grabbing onto anything they really could at that point. That makes sense. And they even commented in, in this one Medscape article how you run into issues with maybe a patient has viral pneumonia, but they also have a secondary bacterial infection. And, you know, the whole point is to try to suss out between viral and, and bacterial and whether antibiotics are needed. So how that affects the procalcitonin. But similarly with COVID, there's a lot of people who get secondary bacterial infections as well. So I, I would, I wonder how that would play, play a role. I guess they wouldn't really know. Mm-mm. No, I guess it'll just kind of be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah. So, um, were you were you actually seeing this used in patient? Um, you know, on your at your like rotation sites and whatnot. Yeah. Um, we actually, I remember rounding with. So when I was on antimicrobial stewardship, one of my co-residents was on MICU, so it was nice because there was a lot of overlap, and I remember being on rounds with him one day and the um, attending was like, okay, well, this, this patient, I don't really know if we should start antibiotics or not. Let's order ProCal. So then it wound up being the next day that I wound up giving an interest because we low key and we told our preceptors that we were kind of like too chicken to say anything right on the spot. Um, and the ProCal, she was like, well, if it's positive, then we'll start antibiotics. If it's negative, we'll hold off. But then we actually did a whole education the next day saying, hey, like, start antibiotics when in doubt, or if you, you don't feel the need, don't start them, and then you would use the ProCal to go ahead and de-escalate. And then from then on, um, I rounded with her later that week, and then she, like, made it such a point with every, she's like, nope, we're going we're gonna to get that ProCal, but we're not using it to initiate. I was like, nice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's awesome um yeah. so, so what's the is the turnaround time like fairly quickly with procal is it like is it one of those things that like most hospital systems are going to have in-house typically um i if i remember correctly i think my preceptor said when we started it was a send out but i remember it came like the next couple of days, I'd say within 24 hour turnaround. And then when I was a student at the other institution I was at, um, it was Henry Ford in Detroit, they had it like within the next lab draw. So within 24 hours, but I will say that it is an expensive test. So I don't, I don't know how much, but it's definitely a lot more than getting like a CBC with disc or something of that nature. So that needs to also be taken into consideration as well. Right. And with the point of it being to reduce antibiotic use and cut costs, and it's, it's an expensive test, I'm sure they'll be looking into whether uh, reducing the antibiotic use will save more money than the test cost. Yeah. Yeah. And hospital uh, admission stay, I guess it could shorten that as well. I, I was just curious as far as like the timing between, you know, because right, I mean, typically I'm thinking like culture and sensitivity reports are coming back. To, to see whether or not we need to de-escalate in the first place. So is that pro-cal going to come back before that, which it sounds like it would? I would say in my experience, I can speak to it as a student because I really, except for those couple of instances on stewardship, like with the ICU, um, that was the case where we had the pro-cal back before the culture. So we decided to DC altogether. But at this institution, from what I remember, I guess that also is like a, it's kind of a toss up, right? When did we draw the cultures? When are they growing? And when did we draw the procal? Um, I mean, I wouldn't be confident in saying the same, but I'm, I'm sure when I'm on ICU, I'll be able to have a better answer. Yeah. But I think, it, I think it, it kind of does kind of, I'm assuming it comes before culture. Yeah. So, I would, if I was a betting man, I'd say probably, but you're not a betting man. I'm right? not, well, <laughs> yeah, it depends. <laughs> depends on the day. But yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, 
So like, I mean, is this, as far as like studies go, are there anything that you've seen like in the works that you're excited about seeing like the end results of that are still on like ongoing right now? I haven't seen anything ongoing. I think the COVID, the whole like COVID and severity is the, the most recent article I found. Um, but I think that will be interesting kind of in the future is like, what more can we do with it? Like what more concrete evidence would we have besides lower respiratory tract infections and sepsis? So I think it'll be exciting to see if people kind of expand on endocarditis or osteo or um, even localized infections. So that's kind of, that's kind of my thought process on that. So which guideline did you see that rec- most recently that recommended it most strongly? Cause you mentioned the low quality of evidence with that one. So which one was the one that had, you know, they said, Hey, we should, we should give this a shot. With Procal? Yeah. Um, I didn't see anything that was strong, but I do know that the only infections that it really is clinically indicated for with um, like antibiotic decision-making would be um, respiratory tract infections and then sepsis and septic shock. Right. But nothing that I've seen is strong, even in like, um, I, I haven't seen the pneumonia guidelines since I was on internal medicine. So I'd have to pull those up, but, um, I don't even think they, I don't know if they mention or don't mention Procal, but if they did, I don't think it would be a strong recommendation. Right. Gotcha. I, yeah. I think everything I've seen, like when I was looking up some stuff for this, cause my, what I've seen, it's extremely limited <laughs> on this topic. Um, but it seemed like it was more so just like, if you want, it can be a tool, but they, they like for decision-making for de-escalation, but it wasn't like much on, like them pushing it or anything like that. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, it wasn't really strongly pushed one way or the other. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So um, is this something that you're going to be doing more research on or is this kind of just, a, you know, something you worked on for that month and we'll call that good or is this something that's really interesting to you? I think I worked on it for that month and I think I will be using it a lot more when I – and back inpatient. Mm-hmm. So I have cardio, ICU, ED. So more critical. I would definitely use it for, um, I guess, patient safety, patient care um, on the inpatient side. But who knows? Maybe, maybe if I do get a PGY2 and I'm in a ID rotation, maybe we can kind of span it to the outside, um, the outpatient world and see if we can use procalcitonin in the outpatient setting with you know, everybody who gets a Z pack and mm-hmm. the bro for five to seven days. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. <laughs> cause I yeah. actually, so, cause I work at like a, an FQHC. So we have like for our pharmacy has like 340 B pricing and like our labs are deeply discounted as well because we take care of a lot of patients who are insured and whatnot. So now I'm half wondering what our price on is on like a send out lab. Yeah. Or so you could be like, Hey, it's, it's probably viral. Yeah, Might should we be, get know. a procalcitonin and tell them to stop, call them and have them stop antibiotics? Yeah. Hmm, we just came up with a research okay. project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to look into that tomorrow, no joke. <laughs> All joking aside, <laughs> I want to see what our price is on that. If it's not astronomical, I might pitch that because that's kind of interesting. Yeah, Because we, you know, being outpatient, you know, we're probably guilty of prescribing more antibiotics than we necessarily need to because we have those patients that come in and they're just like, I don't need to see anybody. I just know I need a Z-Pack. So if we could just get that going, I can get out of here. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, like whenever you need a Z-Pack, okay. but yeah, if you can point to something to say, oh, you know, this isn't going to help yeah. you, then maybe they'd be like, okay, so I'll just 
<laughs> well, they won't, but you know, they, you, they, they still want to see you'll still want to see back, but, but at yeah. least we'll have research. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. True. Very true. No, that's cool. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that'd be that'd be really cool. You'll have to keep me posted on on how that goes for you. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> see. well you'll see it in you know New England Journal of Medicine soon. So, oh, I would <laughs> I would say almost definitely. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool though. Um, anything else on that in particular that we didn't cover? Anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? I think we covered it, I guess. I just encourage everyone to just keep reading. If you come across anything, um, correct me if I ever make anything, any wrong statements. <laughs> so, no, but I think we covered most everything. So now, listeners, you know everything you could ever need to know about procalcitonin. Something you didn't know about <laughs> 30 minutes ago. So, you're welcome. So make sure you, yeah, email Sharon Tyler. Thank you. <laughs> No, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know uh, we've been talking about it for a little bit, and then uh, it's been hard to match up the the schedule. So with your schedule being as busy as it is and everything, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us again. That's pretty awesome. Thank you guys for the opportunity. It's definitely a privilege. Of course. Um, Is there an email or like Instagram handle or anything like that you want to share to listeners? You don't have to if you don't want to. But if you do want people, if other students or residents want to contact you, is there any way that you would want them to do that or through us? Sure. Put you on the spot. Um, I guess especially. <laughs> yeah, give out all your personal student. information. You're, we need your cell phone <laughs> number. <laughs> Social security. Um, I guess especially for students, if you ever have any questions on residency or the match process, feel free to DM me on Instagram. My Instagram um, handle is S-Y-D-I-C-K-O-W-S-Y-D-I-C-K-O-W. Um, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Or even if you come across any cool literature that you want to share, feel free. I'm always always happy to discuss awesome awesome and thank you all for listening uh if you have any questions for cole or myself make sure that you email us the emails are in the show notes below um you can also contact us on any of the social media platforms um if you want to text us directly you can text 415-943-6116 and if you have any comments questions concerns anything like that by all means, reach out to us and we will do our best to get back to you in a timely manner. <laughs> We've been trying to do better, but sometimes we get behind. So um, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to everyone who's uh, subscribed on Patreon. That helps us out tremendously. We really appreciate that. And uh, we will see you next time. Have a great one.